I want to go to there. Snipe! Saw the window and I just couldn't resist it. Francie doesn't like coffee ice cream. Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes. Nice. Thirty Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's kind of flying, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, full hearts, get Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound on Sight's TV podcast. This is Kate Kulzik, and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, last week you said you were getting sick, and you've passed it through the internets to me, the 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 one of the two of us who usually does get sick. Please at least tell me you're feeling better. I feel awesome. Yeah, well, that's, that's fabulous, because I don't. <laughs> that's just great. <laughs> But at least one of the two of us does feel better. You know, I, I should have gone to bed last night. I fin I, I was subbed in for Zach Hanlon over the A V Club covering The Walking Dead this week, so that meant I was up later writing that review. Uh and then I I should have gone to bed, but the good wife was right there and and I'm sure this is, you know, my body punishing me for staying up until like one AM to finish watching The Good Wife. You had the right to not sleep. You were covering the the technically the second biggest show on television for like the biggest TV site on the internet. That's a big deal. No, I think it was. I think my body was like, no, be responsible and watch The Good Wife tomorrow, Kate. You can wait twelve hours, but I but didn't. You really couldn't, could you? I really couldn't, and I don't really, I don't regret that decision. We'll get to The Good Wife later in the show. Uh, this week, uh, there's. There's a very long, fabulous segment with the wonderful Mo Ryan of the Huffington Post and Talking TV with Ryan and Ryan. Coming at the end of the podcast, she came on to talk about uh, Transparent, Season 1, and uh, what else? We talked about You're the Worst. We talked about uh, Outlander. We're talking about depictions of sexuality on television and just some of the different approaches that are being taken by some shows on TV this year, tying in with her piece that she wrote about the uh, Outlander wedding episode uh, for Huffington Post. And that's coming at the end of the show. That's going to be, it's like almost, it's at least 45 minutes. I think it's closer to an hour. I clocked it at 55 on the original recording. I don't know if you're going to whittle that down at all, but it was, as usual with Mo, and I mean this in the best possible sense, we we went in with a plan and the plan went totally awry. Yeah, we had to stop ourselves from tangenting into uh, the affair because that would have been another 20 minutes uh, so anyways, it was, it was lovely talking with Moet as it always is. And I, I hope you guys will enjoy that segment at the end of the podcast. But because of that, we're trimming things down a little bit this, this week, we're going to try to keep things a bit more streamlined and avoid a two and a half hour long podcast. Um, so let's dive right in with some listener feedback here at the top. Uh, heard from Carl who wants to know if we're going to check out the 100 when it comes back for season two. He says, I've really enjoyed the 100. To me, it is like if Lost and Battlestar Galactica combined and had a 20 something year old baby. Any uh, chance you'll check back in with the 100? Did you watch the pilot even? No, but right now I'm distressed by the mental image of a like a really buffed out 20 something year old seat, like typical CW type covered in like birth fluid. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm just imagining like 20 something year old tie and, uh, and lock just like in immortal combat, you know, just never ending. That's what I'm imagining. I could see that. That that's, I think that would be awesome. 
It could be. I, I kind of doubt that the 100 is actually that awesome. <laughs> well, uh, I, I have heard a lot of praise for it. I don't know that I will make time for it yet, but it is certainly on my radar, Carl, in a way that I didn't expect for it to be. There's been, you know, Mo, for example, is a big uh, proponent for the show, and there, there are certainly many others in the critical community who are on the bandwagon. So uh, with it starting up this, this week, we'll see what happens. I may jump in with the premiere um, I may wait till we get to the doldrums in December, but uh, for right now, I'm not. I'm not sure. Uh, Beth asked if Shield, if, if I thought there was an alias shout out with uh, the coffee reference there this week on Shield, Beth, and I thought that was a lovely little nod. I want to think it was an alias shout out, but uh, I I don't know. So I I want to throw this out to our listeners and see what they think. Do you think if you watch Shield this week, and you are familiar with coffee based um, identity moments in uh, Alias. Do you think that was a reference? I'm guessing you didn't watch Shield, uh, Simon. Uh, n- no, no, I, I didn't. <laughs> well, I, I... I'm really I'm beefing with the whole notion of superhero media even more than usual lately because of the release of that ridiculous DC film schedule. Okay, but Bell and Sebastian, right? Well, okay, that's. Don't even get me started on on <laughs> Bell and Sebastian. Okay, don't 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 tie things I love into things that I do not love. Fair enough. Um, well, how about we talk about a, a thing that I know that you love? Mario says uh, that he's elevated the character named Finn Polmar to be the third his third favorite after Irina Derevko and the characters on Hannibal, Alana Bloom, and Miriam Lass, and so many others. Um, it, so I think that's you know I know that you know you're a fan of that name there. Um, Mario says maybe absence made my heart grow fonder but i love the season premiere of top chef and i'm happy for the first winners i'm going to mention top chef a little bit later in the reality section um do you think you'll watch any top chef this season i will try things are (laughs) november is going to get rough ladies and gentlemen in ways that i can't even properly explain to you but i will try i'll do my little best as raylan givens would say Okay, how about uh, Eric, who says, is it worth watching The Legend of Korra? I mean, is it not just for kids? Should I watch the last Airbender series first? First of all, Eric, I've still, I've seen one episode of Legend of Korra, and so I'm really not the person to ask. However, instinctively, I feel the need to say, of course it's not just for kids, that's ridiculous. Um, Because I feel that way about a lot of of animation programming that just gets lumped in as uh, it must just be for kids because it's a cartoon. Um, Certainly, I would point to Gravity Falls and Adventure Time as big examples that are currently on the air. Um, But yeah, I've not seen it. I've just heard the heaps of praise that former co-host Sean Coletti has for the series, as well as many, many others in the critical critical community. Thoughts, Simon? Well, they can't all be wrong, can they? They can totally all be wrong because it happens all the time, but they're probably not all wrong. Yeah, I would imagine they're not. And as for whether you should watch the last Airbender series first, again, haven't seen any of it. (laughs) It's a big, you know, dark, you know, it's a red mark in my uh, book of shows that I need to catch up with. Uh, But what the argument that Sean was making to me earlier was that it's better to be caught up and enjoying the last run of Legend of Korra than to not, you know, to to get to there and theoretically love the show because it's great, but have missed that communal experience because you were trying to catch up with The Last Airbender. So just dive in with Korra and then you can go back and watch Last Airbender afterwards, after you fall in love with the universe. 
So I'm just going to defer to Sean on that. Uh, Carl also says, um, he wrote, emailed us and says, uh, in relation to the question of the week, having been uh, heavily involved in fan campaigns to save shows, Fringe, Almost Human, and Almost Human, and Listed, of course, Carl did just all these really great posters for Enlisted, was very involved with that campaign. I did pay very close, close attention to ratings. I would be on the DVR plus three ratings as soon as they came out, and I would get very frustrated when shows were not gaining a following. I would, I've even gone back and forth with the cancellation bear on Twitter, to my shame. Carl, never, never apologize for Twitter. Just don't do it. I'm sure it was hilarious at the time. Uh, Carl says, I was burned so often by shows getting canceled that I loved that I would wait until a show got a second season, pick up, and then would go back and binge watch the first season. Now there is such a large volume of good television, I can barely keep up with with shows. So it's easier for me to just watch what I enjoy and not get so wrapped up in its future. And I think that is an excellent approach uh, where Carl finds himself now. What do you think, Simon? I think that's a good way to look at it, but I think also as you know, I, I the big piece I wrote last week, which was already referenced and which sort of was the tie into that question of the week, as that sort of argued and I think is correct because I argued it. Um, you know, the era of premature cancellation. I'm not going to say that it's over, like clearly it isn't, as Enlisted has shown us, but there are just so many more avenues for shows to come back through. And there are so many more metrics to measure popularity by that sort of the traditional, you know, beloved show gets cut off at the knees thing is just going to be happening less and less. Well, and if you're not uh, if you're not a, a Nielsen household, that doesn't mean that you can't assist with things, because I know that uh, they they now take Twitter aware into a, into account like how prevalent things are on twitter so even if you don't have uh, a nielsen box at home but if, if you're talking about the show if you're you know if, if it's a show you care about and you like chatting about on twitter on facebook these other places that's starting to have more and more weight so mm -hmm. don't hold out i mean think about shows like hannibal hannibal is a classic example of a show that a few years back would have lasted maybe half a season or one season and then disappeared because it by traditional metrics it just wasn't doing that well it's about to enter its third season because that's where we live now yep it's a lovely place to be oh god hannibal is not oh that's i never want to live there ever but uh yes <laughs> <laughs> the world in which hannibal is entering its third season that's pretty great i'll say that um <laughs> also uh this week at at sound on site we have 31 days of horror still going strong uh, some fun uh, TV articles going up to in conjunction with that, as well as lots of film and comics and uh, games uh, articles as well. Of course, Simon, you've already mentioned your uh, your article for Departure Day about closure and television. I think people should go check that out. Give you a little plug there. Um, the Walking Dead podcast is now coming out on Wednesdays, Wednesday evenings, due to uh, Ricky and my co-host Ricky and my uh, schedule. Uh, so, so that'll be coming later in the week. It should also be coming out in your televerse feed and as i mentioned i did actually review it for av club this week so you can read my thoughts about it there i'm not going to really talk about it here because there'll be an hour of me chatting about it on your feed come wednesday so we'll just leave that as it is any other thoughts uh for this week at over at sound on site which people will be checking out uh the only th other thing i'll plug is that uh after a brief absence we recorded another episode of the sound on site podcast on sunday which just went up as we record this it was uh, Ricky D and myself talking about uh, the Swedish film We Are Best, a.k.a. We Are the Best. Uh, there's an exclamation mark at the end, so that's how you have to say it. And Frank, so it was our 
our our rock movie episode, and we did a long we did a long uh, sort of re- week in review segment where Ricky got got Ricky got to get all of his uh, beloved TV talk out of the way basically in one long talk spot. So that was pretty fun. So anyway, that's uh, that's up now in case you want even more audio content in your brains. I'm gonna have to check that out because uh, I always love when I get the chance to talk TV with Ricky or listen to him. You know, go off about you know the shows that he's following. It's basically the sound of him being like, "Oh my god." And this, oh my God, and this, which is always fun. Yeah, definitely. Well, with that being said, let's take a break and come back with our week in TV, and we'll kick things off with reality and comedy. This week in reality and comedy, Simon's going to talk a little bit about the new series Foo Fighters Sonic Highways, then I'll uh, chat about uh, the Top Chef Boston premiere as well as The Little Amazing Race, and then we'll move on to the comedies. Simon's going to give his thoughts on The Marry Me Pilot, uh, and then we'll talk Key and Peel, Slapass in Recovery, and Blackish Crazy Mom. So first, uh, the reality series we're talking about this week, I did not get a chance to, to watch the Foo Fighters Sonic Highways uh, premiere. Uh, what What is this? And it's a documentary series? It's a docu-series. Okay. Here's the thing that's confusing about this series. It is a an eight-part docu-series uh, conceived and directed by Dave Grohl, who most people will know as the lead singer of the Foo Fighters and also previously the drummer for Nirvana. And the concept is that uh, he and, and the band wanted a novel way to record their new record. So what they did was they decided they would go to eight cities and record a song each and you know one song per city over about a week or two each and while they're in the city they sort of profile the music scene of the city dating back to you know the, at least the the 20s or 30s in the case of Chicago which is the the city of the first episode where they record the opening track and incidentally the first single of the record so it's Dave Grohl who if you know who he is you know he's a very uh, affable presence uh, explaining to us via various talking heads and through his own recollections the history of music in Chicago from from the 30s all the way up to his teenage heyday of the 80s uh, and so on and so forth. Lots of time spent with Steve Albini at Electrical Audio, lots of time spent with Buddy Guy, lots of time spent talking about Muddy Waters, lots of time spent talking about punk, etc., etc., connecting a lot of dots in a very loose way. And a lot of that is theoretically really interesting, and some of it is generally, genuinely really interesting. And watching them record at Electrical Audio and getting specific sounds and talking to Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick and geeking out and getting Steve Albini being a cranky motherfucker, all that stuff is great. But it's a little bit weird that you get this huge survey, the sort of huge survey course in the history of music in Chicago and more broadly the history of music in America, 
and it all culminates in helping Dave Grohl to write a Foo Fighters song. And the episode ends with basically a, a, a lyric video for the track in question. And you... It sort of it has this weird unintended effect of making the entire history of American music seem like it's culminating with the new Foo Fighters record, which it's not. There are there are probably two hundred other bands that I would have been more interested to see do this sort of cross city tour, a musical tour of America. But of course, that wouldn't have worked because Dave Grohl just happens to be the best connected guy in music in the states right now, if not. If not, you know, through all circles, at least many of them in terms of popular music. So there aren't a lot of people who could have pulled off what they're even attempting here. So it's kind of a catch-22. Uh, I may watch the second episode, which I believe is set in Washington, D.C. I hear that it's better, uh, but I think the the show is more interesting on paper than it is in execution, at least based on the premiere. It was it was an intriguing watch. I'm glad that I, I gave it a shot, but it... Uh, it struck me as being a, a less than ideal combo. Well, I'll have to see if I uh, get time to check that out. It, you know, at least the, for the Chicago of it, at least of the of the premiere. For me, I wasn't watching documentaries this week, but I did, of course, watch the premiere of of Top Chef Boston and also The Amazing Race. And uh, it was a fun premiere for Top Chef Boston. Like Mario said, I think they have an interesting group of chefs. They seem competent and uh and that's always good. I like the challenges that they had in this premiere. The the opening one was the the breakdown challenge. I don't know that uh, the air quotes the right person got eliminated. It was very arbitrary that someone got eliminated based on whether or not they were uh, pushy enough to insist they got the protein they were the most comfortable breaking down or not. But, um, you know whatever <laughs> there's too many chefs anyways so they need to there some of these eliminations are likely going to be rather arbitrary early on uh the the petroleum nachos is just it boggles my mind i don't know who how he thought hey you know what let's have it'll be like nachos only it's going to look like gas and that's a good thing but um you know, maybe I'm hoping that guy, that chef will have more to offer moving forward. Blaze being a chef or being a, a, a judge this season, I, I want to like him, but uh, I also am leery of things like, like he comes up to two of the different chefs as they're preparing and plating their food. So it's too late to change anything. It says, we got to talk about a particular like molecular gastronomy thing that they were doing. It's like, here's the thing. Uh, blaze you don't want to talk about it you want to tell them that they're wrong for doing it and that's okay i mean it's a dick move to do it while they're in the middle of serving it to people but you know you can be a dick about it that's fine but the no the terminology we need to talk about it's like no you need to say that if you actually want to talk about it uh so you know these things like that are not really making him come off very well and it could just be that he's nervous having you know like making that transition and so he might still be trying to be their friend instead of just you know noting are you sure about that okay we'll talk about it later at judges table 
Um, so we'll see how that goes. Um, as for the amusing race, I thought it was another really fun episode. This season's been really good. I'm very glad. I mean, I hope people are watching it on Fridays. I have no idea of what the ratings are, but this has really been the best season in quite a while. I mean, last week they had to herd sheep and it was awesome. And this week between the delivering the wedding cake and the, the order, the menu, the, like having to memorize the the sandwiches thing that they had to do. I love that they're doing these creative and not uh, typically strength based or endurance based challenges. I love that they're doing some more mental skills or or um, memory or observation based challenges. And I also really appreciate. I mean, the dentists are so type A that it can be they can be a bit overbearing. However, when the uh, the the one of the two uh, had them there much longer than they needed to be by making just overlooking a detail. You know, the, the, the guy doesn't, you know, give her a hard time at all. He's completely supportive and doesn't critique her for screwing up such a simple thing. And that's something that's, those are the kind of situations where usually we, we see a couple, you know, maybe not have the best <laughs> moment. And so that while they can be a bit, overbearing it's nice to see them get knocked down a peg uh and still be around to theoretically succeed or move forward so you know i think there is a really strong batch of contestants this year so i gotta i gotta you know tip my hat to the to the casting department um and yeah i just i'm you know i don't again i don't know if you have time to catch up with it simon but i i'm very much enjoying the season of the amazing race well let's uh let's leave that reality there and go on to comedies and first uh you you mentioned that you had seen the marry me pilot any thoughts Oh, marry me. Uh, so this comes to us, as you probably mentioned before, from David Caspay, who created Happy Endings, and Casey Wilson is here from Happy Endings, and Ken Marino is here, and that should be great, and it isn't, and it's upsetting. I think what really kind of... I think the thing that really shoots it in the foot... There's two things, I suppose. One, I don't think... I'm trying to think of a way to have Ken Marino as your male lead and have him be the sincere straight man and have it work. Like I, that just seems like, like a misuse of resources to me. I mean, I think there's a way to do it. And, and certainly, uh, he, I think he's capable, but, uh, you know, I, I think he can do that role, but I would like to see him be funny in that role. There's a way to make that role funny and they don't really do that here. Yeah. I mean, maybe, it's just I don't know. Maybe it's it's because maybe it's my fault, and I just I associate him too much with a certain kind of self-aware humor. So putting him in this very sort of square role on a pretty square sitcom just makes the juxtaposition even worse. Uh, that could be happening, and that's not really the show's fault, but it's still happening in my brain. So I have to note that it's happening. I mean, I guess the bigger issue is that it's just not that funny. The, the, so much of the show rests on Casey Wilson being super wacky all of the time. And, I mean, you, you said all this a couple of weeks ago, so I don't want to be too too uh, too repetitive about it. But you were right, and the balance doesn't work. And, I've, I mean, I've heard from some people that it, it does get better. But I feel like I've heard that about all the comedies this season, and uh, it can't be true about all of them. So... I'm hoping for good things from Eliza Coop's uh, USA series, but other than that, it's it's really too bad they couldn't just get happy endings restarted. Well, there's that uh, 
And I know there are many of us out there who would have liked a little bit more time there, but with happy endings. Alaska Coop's new series is is uh, fun, but not. I, I want to temper expectations there. I've seen the first three or four. And so it's, certainly it's fun and diverting, but uh, uh, it's not, I wouldn't say it's the, the next great, great comedy. Um, so maybe, and who knows, maybe it will grow into something more. But for right now, let's keep our expectations elsewhere, I would say, and instead maybe focus on some of the other new shows. I, I will mention that I watched another episode of Selfie. I watched episode three and did actually th I think it was a, an improvement over the pilot. And uh, I'll likely keep checking into episodes people recommend that I check out. Um, but let's move on to Key and Peele because uh, they had a pretty darn good episode this week. They did, uh, and I like that they they seem to know when sketches aren't that great because, at least for me, they stuck by far the weakest sketch. Uh, once again, uh, tacked, they sort of tacked it at the, at the end of the episode. Uh, I know that you weren't such a fan of either Grabass or this week's sequel segment, but I thought it was I don't know, kind of a blast. Again, they have such a keen grasp of uh, of direction and editing and scoring that they can elevate a really tired premise with just through sheer aesthetic overblownness. And I think that sketch is is a really good example. But of course, this week is all about the Family Matters sketch, which I think instantly enters the pantheon of great Key and Peele sketches. What well, what? blew my mind about it was when I was talking to you and you said that every script that they mentioned they give a plot synopsis of is an actual episode of Family Matters. That blew my mind. Yeah. Uh, like, I, I would have to double check the precise details, but I know, but, but I, the first time I saw the sketch and they were going on about, you know, uh, or Steve getting a, getting a transformation, uh, transportation machine. I thought, okay, they went a little broad with this, but it works for the dark purposes of the sketch. And then I went and I looked at the Wikipedia page for Family Matters, and I realized that not only was that stuff all present, it didn't even take them that long to start incorporating that stuff onto the show. That's just the that's just what was happening on sitcom writing at the time. So, uh, yeah, that the fact that it's based in fact really adds a whole other level of lunacy to that sketch. Yeah, it really, really does. Um, <laughs> and I, I haven't gone back to... I remember watching Family Matters. Uh, I know that it was part of the TGIF lineup, and so therefore I'm sure there was many a week that I watched it. Um, and I have, certainly have a fond place in my heart for uh, for Reginald Bell Johnson and uh, and that that show. I didn't remember any of that stuff, <laughs> the ridiculous Urkel stuff. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, that was a... It was it was a very successful sketch. Excellent performances. I loved that. You know the the network guy was basically the the, the douchebag from Die Hard. I thought that was a lovely touch. Like when he says "bubble," I was like, "Oh yes, yes, Die Hard." So um, yeah, I agree. <laughs> it certainly joins the pantheon. The other episode this week that really worked for me and was a bit of a surprise was Blackish, which you actually recommend that I re recommended that I check out. Yes, I've been hearing really great things about Blackish for a while. Uh, however, when I saw sort of bits and pieces in previous weeks, I found it pretty hackneyed, to be honest, especially it, it was once again, the umpteenth example of uh, narration this in sitcoms this week, uh, sorry, this, uh, this season. But I think Blackish has one of the less egregious ones, even though it does sometimes sort of step on the show a little bit for me. 
That being said, I think the show is, at least this episode in particular, was a blast. It's uh, A, super fun to see Lawrence Fishburne playing it laid back on a sitcom, especially after two seasons of Hannibal. Uh, that will never get old for me. It just, it just, I've never seen him just be so relaxed on anything ever. So it's just, it just watching him kick it with a Hawaiian shirt on all the time is its own reward. But uh, I think more importantly, the show is really funny. It's got some surprisingly uh, piercing and I wouldn't say risque, but at least nicely culturally specific humor for a network sitcom. That's always great to see. I think Anthony Anderson and Tracy Ellis Roth have fantastic comic interplay and chemistry. And, I mean, you said this to me, and I'm going to steal the sentiment from you. The fact that they're a married couple who genuinely enjoy each other's company and do have squabbles, but not to a bitter, sort of not fun degree, as uh, so many other sort of uh, tradi- more more traditional sitcoms do, I think is great. Uh, the kids are a nice balance of precocious and actually funny. Uh, there's there's a lot to like about the show. It's 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 very charming. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the the whole forks and spoons stuff. I mean, Lawrence Fishburne saying willy nilly is all I needed. And and when you add in the the whole uh, cutting back to the theater, it's like it's like oh I've seen this I've seen this one before. He he messes it up. Uh, it was just delightful. So yeah, I had a lot of fun with this episode, and I it's it's also it's incredibly accessible too. You get a strong sense of the characters, uh, but it's if you if you haven't seen the other episodes, you really don't need to. You can just dive in with this one. So I recommend that people check it out. Um, and with that being said, what wins your week in uh, comedy and reality, Simon? Whew. I mean, the Urkel sketch was pretty special, but I think for overall experience, I'll give it to Blackish for being such a nice surprise. I didn't even intend to watch it. It just happened to be on when I was watching television. I thought, hey, I should give it a shot. And it was just such a nice little uh, little surprise. I think it's pretty clearly, the, at least from what I've seen, the, uh, the new network sitcom winner. I realize that is not a, a great contest, but still... Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, for me, if you're going to go full episode, it's got to be Blackish, and more people should check it out. Definitely the highlight of the network sitcoms this, this season so far. So now we'll take a break and come back with our week in genre. This week in genre, I'm going to do a quick Kate's genre roundup, and then we're going to talk uh, American Horror Story. So it'll be a shorter segment this week. Um, I'm just going to mention that Constantine is starting up this week. I've already talked about the pilot and I reviewed it when uh, during our Comic-Con wrap-up. It's not it's not good, guys. Though I do think that the lead, Matt Reeves, is does a good job with the role, and I like that they don't overly 
water him down, at least in the pilot. And again, I'm not a huge Hellraiser person. I just have a awareness of an affinity for the character. It would be nice if they would let him smoke and it would be nice if they didn't, you know, feel the need to. Allegedly, they, this could always change, but uh, the, the character is, a, is bisexual in the comics and that is certainly not going to be happening on NBC. Uh, and that is disappointing to say the least. Uh, but the that's not the issue with the pilot. The issue with the pilot is that it's not particularly well written um, and that it features a very prominent character who was immediately re, uh, written out. So it's hard to know exactly what it'll be without its female lead. But it's it's certainly, you know, they could have cut 20 minutes out of this pilot and you wouldn't have lost anything. And that's not a good sign. Um, so that's, that's, that's my thoughts on the Constantine pilot. I'm sure some people are, a lot of people are very excited about it. I'm sure some will like it much more than I did. And I look forward to your guys' thoughts. Uh, this week in genre, I'm going to mention shield because I thought it was, yeah, it starts out not too great with the, the very over the top art heist stuff. The, the tango scene did not work for me at all. Really felt like it was trying too hard, but I did love the subversion with the, um, I did love the subversion of expectation with the laser grid, and I thought the the fight scenes that we got with uh, May and fake May uh, worked really well and was, were a lot of fun. So the, this was you know a little bit of a slow start to this episode, but it ended up being uh, a really strong one. And I think you know for for Shield they they've. Uh, They've done a good job in the second season, and it's a show I consistently enjoy watching. So I, I'd put it up there with like other shows, other shows like Elementary um, or or Person of Interest that I'm consistently watching. Or Grimm is another one that I there are things about them that I really enjoy, but I it's nowhere near the top of TV right now for me. Uh, but there's nothing wrong with just enjoying an episode. Um, Arrowhead Sarah. Again, another thoughtful and strong episode from them. I'm glad to be on board. Um, and I don't really... Uh, the, some of the some of the threads that they look to be exploring, I think, are good ones for the season. I, I feel like I have the sense that they're just going to get get us to the end of the season and just really tease out this Elicity thing in a way that's going to be frustrating. But I like what we get in this episode, and I'm hoping that's indicative of what's to come. Uh, Doctor Who Flatline, my review is up at Sound On Sight, and I thought this was another strong in, um, installment. I like this. Um, you know, Tom and Lorenzo wrote in their review of the previous week's episode, Mummy and the Orange Express, that they think Clara's becoming... A, is, is an addict. She's she's addicted to traveling with the doctor, and that her behavior is is showing this, and that it's a, you know so it's gonna start being a destructive thing in her life, and that could be very interesting. And they they inch towards it here with her lying to the doctor and lying to Danny and really unconcerned that she's just seen a bunch of people die and giddy and ready for another hit. <laughs> so. Uh, that could be very interesting. I'm hoping that they stick the landing if that's what they're going to do. Uh, the It would have been nice if the Doctor could stop being a jackass without Clara destroying her life and this causing him to see the influence he's having on her. But, um, again, a lot remains to be seen. This episode was just hilarious. There was so much fun stuff. You, I'm sure, would have hated it, Simon. Uh, what... <laughs> I hate fun, it's true. At one point, you know, the doctor is stuck inside the TARDIS and because the door has gotten tiny because the exterior dimensions have are being affected by these creatures. So it's just a lot of gi Peter Capaldi's giant face staring out through tiny doors. And at one point, he reaches his hand out and, like, you know, Adam's family, it's it. 
<laughs> the TARDIS out of harm's way, and it's just amazing. So, you know, there's there's a lot to enjoy in this episode. Uh, it's nice to see Clara step up and be the doctor, basically, uh, here. But, um, yeah, again, I don't know if... Does, does that sound like your kind of thing? <laughs> you know me. I do. I do know. Yeah, that's why I was like, this is a really fun episode. But not for Simon, so I won't ask that he watches it. Um, another fun episode is Sleepy Hollow, The Weeping Lady, and... Uh, while this Holly stuff is still terrible, I do like what they do here with um, with Ichabod and with Katrina. It's nice to see a little, you know, honesty and reality in their storybook romance. Uh, and I also like that they don't that that they still keep emphasizing and and illustrating how much these two people do very much love each other, which is a nice sort of fans. He's married. I get that you're a shipper, but he's married and he loves his wife. And so it's nice that they're doing that um, instead of just rushing into some sort of UST thing with Abby. Um, the last thing I'll mention here is that I am officially breaking up with Gotham. No Woo! Gotham. Bad. <laughs> and uh, there's some stuff I am really liking still on the show, but every time I watch it, I end up pissed off because of the writing and because of what they are saddling poor Ben McKenzie with. And it's another show that's wasting Donald Logue. How do you make him your second lead and give him nothing to do? How? <sighs> yeah. This happened on Vikings as well. From what I saw, just I I'm really worried. He'll never get another terriers level opportunity, especially since it seems like Gotham's going to be on for a while. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's no excuse. I mean, Bruno Heller, you did Rome. You that show is I'm a really big fan of that show. I think it is is tremendous and it certainly features any number of fantastic performances from underappreciated actors. So, the fact that he doesn't seem to understand how to use Donald Logue is just it boggles the mind. It really does. Um, so enough said there, uh, Gotham. Let's move on to the show that you've seen this weekend, genre, and that's American Horror Story Massacres and Matinees. Uh, creepy Clown be creepy? Uh, creepy Clown be creepy, I guess. Um, I don't know about this one, guys. Uh, you know, I've seen, I've seen almost the entirety of American Horror Story so far to date. I did have to give up on Murder House maybe three quarters of the way through because it was just too stupid for me. But... I don't know, I just really can't shake the feeling that this season is going nowhere really fast. The preview for next week did look vaguely intriguing. You know, throwing in this more overtly supernatural element could be interesting, although completely predictable given what's happened in other seasons. But I'll give you an example of the sort of Ryan Murphy storytelling bullshit that I just, I'm quite sick of. It was established in the first episode that the Sarah Paulson Siamese twins share thoughts. They have like sort of a, they have kind of a telepathic link. Uh, although I don't know if you want to call it that considering they share a body. Uh, and this, yet this week we have one twin theoretically starting to plot to murder the other one, which like based on what we've already seen, that's not plausible even in the world of the show. It's two episodes in and you've already contradicted yourself in a totally Ah, uh, frustrating way. So, that, I mean, I know that this is not the sort of thing that you're supposed to be thinking of while watching American Horror Story, but it's the kind of thing that I get hung up on. It's the same reason that I'm not good at watching, you know, things like Gotham. <laughs> yeah, that that didn't bother me too much there 
um, that moment didn't, but, um, you know, and, and I, I do think that character, those performances from Sarah Paulson are among the more interesting things on the show. What I didn't care about and was just exhausting for me was the, as much as I enjoy that ridiculously over the top spoiled psycho kid, um, I really didn't need to see the kid and the, the young woman escape and then get captured and brought back to be terrorized some more. Really didn't need that. Uh, it was so blatant that that's what they were going to, that it just felt all the more manipulative. Um, and as fabulous as a line, like, I'm going to St. Petersburg where they have real candy corn or whatever it was, that was just delightful. And I really am enjoying that performance. The stuff with the clown, just it's not tied into anything in a way that makes it work for me. Yeah, and I mean, I'm I fully expect that at some point they're gonna find a way to tie that in. Probably, it's gonna be really convoluted. But I don't know. Just this season, the I feel like Asylum got a really nice blend of tones and ideas and emotion that really worked in tandem in some strange way. This se- and and I think parts of Coven did that too by connecting to you know certain historical events and certain. Uh, socially progressive ideas and it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I just don't, I don't feel any of that sort of weird synthesis happening so far this season. Like the, the irritants are, be, are, are outweighing the potential benefits really early on. And that's not a good sign. Yeah, certainly not. Any other thoughts on this episode? <sighs> no, I, Michael Cheekless, still in search of another great, of another great series and it's still not happening. Yeah. Uh, I like Angela Bassett's uh, here. It's, she's just having fun in the role and that that's enough for me right now. Chickless, uh same thing. I don't look forward to this. Um, I don't know this like battle for the soul of the, of the freak show between the different, you know, male influences, I guess just, it's not interesting to me. So um there's some stuff here, and I'll stick with it for a few more weeks at the very least. But, um, yeah, I would like there to be more that I was engaged with. Again, I want, if this is going to be American Horror Story, it'd be nice if I was actually interested in this um, as a horror story. Because right now it's just far less interesting to me than a straight drama would be about these characters. Yep, I can I can get behind that. Well, uh, and that, that being said, for me, what wins my week in genre is it's like, I'm going to give it to a tie to Doctor Who and uh, to Arrow because uh, they're both strong episodes. Anything else you want to give it to? Or are you giving it to American Horror Story? Or you pleading the fifth? <laughs> uh, I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna plead the fifth on this one. It was it was a slow week for genre clearly. Well, there's other good genre, just not ones that you're watching. Yeah, it's just it's. My 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 tastes have grown finicky this year. I don't know what it is. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, now we'll take a break and we'll come back with our week in drama.
this week in drama, we're going to talk a little bit about the Nick finale, Crutchfield, and then Boardwalk Empire's penultimate episode, Friendless Child, The Affair 2, and then we'll close things out with The Good Wife, Shiny Objects. So first, the Nick finale. I, As I said earlier, a few weeks back, I watched episode, I want to say it was seven, I watched the Race Riots episode, and then immediately wanted to watch the next one. As soon as I watched ahead, because I do have screeners for these, I was just trying to not... Spo- want to make sure I didn't spoil anything for y'all. Um, as soon as I started, I just like finished out the season and, uh, that final shot of the finale was just the kind of thing I was most dreading. I don't want to see another season of this show where, where we watch Thack be addicted to heroin. Please tell me that's not what's coming. I mean, uh, this episode for me underlined my basic frustration with the Nick, although I'm not sure it's quite the same as yours. I've been reading a lot of um, columnists like Matt Zeller sites talk about the uh, the directorial, the visual, the aesthetic aspects of the show that are groundbreaking, uh, not just for TV, but in general, in terms of how to present a period piece. And I don't mean to undersell how awesome that is, but I feel like the the ways that the script hurts the show is more significant than if a similar quality script was being made for a film. I feel like if, if Soderbergh had wanted to adapt this material for a film, it probably would have, would have been a pretty dynamite movie. But as it stands in terms of the way a TV show is structured and presented to you, it is traditionally thought of as a writer's medium. And to, to me, what, what fascinates me about The Nick as a show that frustrates me is that it's, it's the battleground of you know trying to make a series that is purely aesthetically wonderful and on a writing level is, uh, Matt Seller's site's called it B-level. I think some of it is actually C-level, which is, you know, annoying for a variety of reasons. And I'm, I'm watching that battle play out where, you know, is it possible for TV to not be a writer's medium for this one show? And it's, it's uh, sometimes I want to say yes, like that, that, you know, that Race Riot episode, for instance, I think was really thrilling. On the whole, though, I'm not sure, and I'm still thinking about it. It's an ex. It's a very interesting uh, thought, and certainly something I would love to read uh, an article about. Simon, should you find the time? <laughs> but uh, yeah, the 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 trouble I have with with this show is when it becomes the same show I've seen elsewhere, just beautifully executed, um, and that will give you some. That'll get you somewhere, certainly, but. I, I still primarily view television as a character-based and story-based uh, medium. So if, you know, you're talking to a person who's seen all of Doctor Who, and I really didn't care about crappy sets and horrible special effects if I cared about the Doctor or the companion or, or just was engaged by the characters or the story. And so when I'm not engaged by Thack, and just, I really am not, at all uh, in in this season, I was most engaged with him when they gave him something to do with Algernon because that you know was stretching him and stretching the two of them and was far more compelling than the everything else we were getting of the tortured genius who is addicted to drugs because we've seen that story before. Um, and these last few episodes just really take us back into that story. It's um, obviously Steven Soderbergh uh, is amazing at what he does and. Uh, I just I I'm curious I don't I'm not familiar with the writers I'm not I don't know 
who's you know on that side of things the creative who's who's crafting the arc of the show so it's just i'll make this a blanket statement to all the writers out there and creatives out there we've seen this story it's not an interesting story anymore you have to have a new take and if you don't then i'm not going to care and i don't think i speak only for myself about your tortured genius um middle-aged probably rich white guy who who's got a, a a problem that he you know he can't seem to handle i don't care i've seen that story and i don't think there's a way to tell that same story where i'm going to be engaged yeah uh that's that's a very difficult hurdle to overcome and and in 2014 why should you even want to have to overcome it there's so many other stories you could tell and the the best part of this season did do that yeah and there are other stories involved here you're absolutely right I mean, to to get back to the episode a little bit, I mean, as per usual, I feel like every episode of The Nick has these wonderful moments of uh, sort of visceral horror that actually, I think, eclipses things like American Horror Story. And that shot of Gallinger's wife, oh, God, <laughs> That's, yep. that was easily bo- top slash bottom three visuals from, from the show overall. Oh, my God. How John Hodgman, man. Gotta get the demons out of her teeth. I can't believe it's taken this long for someone to cast cast John Hodgman as a turn of the last century doctor. Sorry, yeah. quack. Because <laughs> he's so perfect for it. Yeah. Think about his children. He's had his children's teeth pulled. Yep. Uh-huh. Uh, I will say that to give them a little bit of credit, I could see them... I can't see them doing the Thack uh, heroin addict storyline, at least not for very long. I would imagine what they're going to do with that is a time lapse and have have that be a thing that's in the past and Thack is, is, has at least theoretically turned a new leaf. I can't imagine them starting that over, especially with, with where all the characters are and what's about to happen to the hospital. I feel like they sort of have to do a time lapse. Just the way that it pulls back and does the... I don't. I'm probably using this. The is rack that, focus. The rack onto focus. The bottle of heroin. Onto the bottle. Like, yeah. Ooh, oh god. I was like, as soon as they said it's perfectly safe, it's from the Bayer company. I was like, oh crap, it's gonna be something like heroin, and then it was. Yeah. Although, worst line of the episode though has to be maybe we'll win one of those new Nobel prizes. Like, oh come on, guys. You're better than this, and that's what that's that's what's frustrating to me is that I have really enjoyed a lot of the season. Um, especially after not expecting to, uh, I was I was very I was very much won over by this sh- by this show. So that's what's most disappointing to me. Um, and I'm ho- I'm hoping with season two that they'll be able to work out some of the kinks and really highlight the strengths of this series. Yeah, I think I see no reason to, to think that season two couldn't be a marked improvement, especially since you know this Soderbergh's done some TV before. He did K Street, which I've never seen, uh, but it's his first you know you know big ticket foray into uh into original drama so i I, there is certain there will always be room for improvement in in second seasons of things especially for a guy as smart as him he i'm sure that he's smart enough to know what the show's shortcomings are so uh i'll be curious to see if that changes next year and i'm I'm willing to believe that it will well let's move on to boardwalk empire and i'm gonna hold off uh talking about this too much because we'll we'll spend a significant amount of time next week with the uh, finale but what did you think of this episode? And I know you've not been a big fan of the flashbacks. Did this episode's uh, pairing of the the Jillian flashbacks with her plea to Nucky for help now 
give weight to those flashbacks or do you still find them unnecessary? Um, the jury's out till next week, I guess. I wasn't a huge fan of that, of the notion of, uh, Nucky saving Jillian being the driving force of the finale. That's kind of a strange decision, especially considering how little of the season Jillian's really actually been in. Uh, that's, I mean, it, it's a decision and they're sticking to it. So good for them. But I don't know, I found a lot of this episode really clumsy and really reliant on some pretty silly circumstances. Like, for instance, Eli re uh, reconnecting with his son and then in the very same scene watching him get watching him get jumped and taken away. I don't know, things like that. I just couldn't get over how silly they were. I, and, and, and just transparent things like giving Mickey tons of dialogue in his exit episode. Just, I don't know, this feels like... There, again, examples of, of clumsy writing getting in the way of what should be, you know, a show we talk about it with superlatives. Yeah, there's uh, there's stuff to like here, certainly. And uh, if, you know, I haven't seen the earlier seasons of Boardwalk Empire. So if there was like some question about what was going to happen to Jillian in the flashbacks, you know, it would work better for me. But I already know what happens. So I'm curious how that works for you. No, because you obviously you know that she that he gives her to the Commodore and that's what gets him started in, you know, what leads to his empire uh, of of Atlantic City. Is that undercutting these the effectiveness of these scenes for you? Not necessarily. I I think there could be actually an interesting sort of, you know, Nucky getting a Nucky is driven by this, you know, feeling that he can finally do something good when really, if you think about it, he's never been the person who does the right thing. And they could get, they could actually mine some, maybe not interesting, but at least potent tension out of that. And maybe that's what, maybe that's where they're going with it. And I think that would be a fitting note for the show to go out on. But again, re refocusing on that so strongly, it's a decision and they're committing to it, but I'm not sure that it's necessarily the the most nuanced or compelling thing they could be doing. Th then again, we're talking about a show whose greatest pleasure this week was by far uh, Bugsy's song. So. <laughs> yeah, that was entertaining to say the least. And no, I did not use that as the music going into the segment. Uh, tempting it. as it was. Um, but let's let's move on for now. We'll talk plenty more Boardwalk Empire next week uh, to the affair. Uh, we're going to keep this one brief as well because, for me at least, this is it feels very similar to the first episode. It's still interesting. Sasha's still terrible. Uh, she's Sasha, by the way, everyone. The character on Bunheads, not <laughs> you know, McNulty's daughter. Uh, but the um, you know, we get we get instances here we get our first um evidence of them straight up lying to the interrogator so that tells us that theoretically the flashbacks are their version of the truth and that mm -hmm. you know so that's good to have that clarified um what did you think of this uh this episode and uh are you more intrigued or still on the fence i actually uh... I'm enjoying the affair, but I actually find it kind of a frustrating show to watch because I'm a chronic overthinker. So, and the show is is being extremely deliberate about how it reveals information and how it reveals the nature of what it's about and the nature of the relationships to the interviews with the detective. So every time we get a new morsel of information, my brain is shooting off in all these directions of what does that mean? 
And if that means that for her version of the events, what does it mean for his version of the events? Are they even necessarily talking about the same disappearance <laughs> or the same murder? That was a, that's when I knew I'd gone down the rabbit hole, but um, I don't know. Like I, I'm uh, there's, there is a lot to admire about the show and yet I still, I, 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 I'm, I feel at a loss to talk about it still right now because I have no concept still what the show's about beyond being about an affair and apparently a murder and dueling perspectives and what they mean. It's still because of the nature, the nature of the show, it's constantly defining itself. And I'm wondering when I'm going to, when my brain will stop being on overdrive while watching it. It's been an interesting experience. Certainly. And uh, <laughs> chronic overthinker, never, not on this podcast. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the the one thing I will say that I need is I need them to stop with the he. I need them to stop being vague about who was killed because the, the number of times that in the second half that, that the, I'm just going to call her the waitress because her name is me at the moment, says he or him and doesn't say the person's name is ridiculous because if, she, if she's somebody who's being brought in for questioning because she knew and was close to this victim or at least was very much aware of them. She should have said their name by now. And it's just, it's the show being clever for clever's sake, and it's really frustrating. Unless they're not, and there's a reason. <laughs> Again, like, I don't, because it's such a new series and we don't really know what the rules are yet, maybe in retrospect it'll make perfect sense. We don't know. I think they're just screwing with us. You have more faith in them than I do. It's not about faith, it's about uncertainty. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Let's move on for now, though, uh, because we are short on time, to The Good Wife, Shiny Objects. Your review is up at Sound on Sight. Uh, and, oh, God, Elsbeth and a Clown. It was amazing. Yes, this was our, uh, apparently it's only our 12th Elsbeth Tassioni episode. Doesn't it feel like so many more than that in a good way? Um, it's funny, as I watched the episode, I thought it was kind of a minor episode. And then I sat down to write about it, and 1,200 words later, in my which I thought was going to be like 600, I realized that it wasn't. I think we should get the bad out of the way uh, and the relevant to what we heard this week. As people who care about The Good Wife will already know, uh, Archie Punjabi is leaving the show at the end of the season, uh, which will make her the first original series regular to leave, presumably in a non-flashy fashion, let's just say. <laughs> uh based on the fact that they've announced it and aren't trying to fuck with us by, by withholding the information. Uh, and that's totally unsurprising because they haven't known what to do with Kalinda for a really long time. And I think even they would probably admit it if pressed, but even, even knowing that the Kalinda stuff was depressingly repetitive for me this week. Yeah. The Kalinda stuff wasn't as good. Uh, I like what they did with her uh, girlfriend. I guess you can call her that, even though that's really not how she treats her until Kalinda thinks that she's tried, screwed her over. Uh, so that was a nice way to, to end that. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to, I, I miss, I'll miss the idea of Kalinda. I'm not going to miss the reality of what Kalinda has been on the show for most of its run. Um, certainly since they had the memorable split between Kalinda and Alicia, uh, they just have not, they've tried all these different things, but they've not found a way to make her work in a larger capacity. And so, uh, 
either they need to stop giving her stuff, which seems like a shame, or write her out. So they're writing her out. Um, and I think it'll end up being a good thing for the show as much as I will miss that character. Uh, let's talk about the good in this episode. And that's uh, Elsbeth, <laughs> the free association of her mind. And for me, it really did connect to this notion of mind palaces uh, where, you know, just storing information visually and processing in that way, which makes so much sense for Elsbeth. Um, I like that. I mean, it's very predictable. It's actually a little disappointing that the show goes for the the kings go for this oh they're gonna have to team up after all uh ending instead of you know you know giving elsbeth the win or you know making alicia beat her which will make us not like alicia quite so much um that's a little disappointing but all the time we spent with elsbeth was fabulous was i the only one who was thinking because in this episode they really they took her not not just because we were looking at it from her perspective they took her usual quirks and they were a little bit more amped up than usual to the point where there's there's one scene where she almost derails the entire case and almost loses it for them until she gets it back and until she she makes that save i actually thought they might be going somewhere with her where she was developing a serious problem and that and they were going to go a very different direction with that character was i the only one thinking that I was hoping it was going to just all be from her perspective. Uh, I thought that would have been delightful. Um, but, you know, I like that they do show the downsides of her because she's always just adorably quirky and underestimated. It's a nice way of uh, of validating the way she is underestimated by so many different lawyers and not respected mm-hmm. uh, because we get the sense of, no, she seems like a crazy person in some of these moments. And so that, that really works for me in a way that some of these other really entertaining, uh, lawyers like, uh, Mamie Gummer, I want to say Grace or Mamie, Mamie, right? Mamie. Yeah. Yeah. The, the shtick for that lawyer got old really quickly cause they never came up with a way to, um, make it into something else or, or develop it. And so for, for this to really, you know, take Elsbeth to that next place and really show, you know, the, the positives, but also the negatives of her lawyering style, uh, lawyering, that's totally a word, uh, that really did work for me. Yes. Plus it gave us, hello, I am a clown in your mind. (laughs) So not going to complain about that. Uh, I can't have been the only person wondering, has Kyle McLaughlin actually been on this show before, or did I imagine that? Because uh, it's been a while. I I looked at his credits. He was actually in Red Team, Blue Team, and I totally forgot about that. And that's like a top five Good Wife episode, so that's kind of a big deal. Um, there was so much going on in this episode. I mean, my the thesis of my review, which you can read on the website, is that it was a big episode for series memory and callbacks, not just because we were getting characters who hadn't shown up in two or three seasons, uh, such as Lana, but uh, also because, um, I mean... The stuff between Peter and Alicia, even the way that hallway scene was shot was a direct callback, if I recall correctly, to specific scenes from season one, which is, you know, the the the, the power reversal they're dealing with, which admittedly they underline with felt tips several times, uh, is a really big deal for the show. And I think it was really beautifully handled. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I guess I'll just end here by saying I'm I'm looking forward to the next development and uh, the next wave of of Alicia's uh, run. 
you talk about series memory, you, you've got to love that this show just, Peter's just a jackass. He's just always been that. And I like when the show decided to stop, you know, with a lo- the love triangle notion, which they did at a certain point, uh, that just, that was such the right move. Peter is Peter. And uh, sometimes that's great. And a lot of the times he's just kind of terrible. So uh, I like that we see that side of him again. Yeah, and he's the rare TV jackass who is, A, believably a jackass considering what he's what he's been through, what he's done, and sort of the his position in life. And B, he's not a jackass to an unbearable all-the-time degree. He's a jackass to the point where it becomes unbearable at, at moments. But you can imagine trying to build a life with someone like that and failing. It's, he's not the sort of person who you would imagine, why would anyone ever marry that dude? Like, no, he's a totally believable jackass. Yeah, definitely. Building to the the inversion of the series opening visual uh, was something that they were going to do. But to do it in this way is certainly very interesting. And I'm, I'm looking forward to what comes next. Any final thoughts on The Good Wife? Uh, no, it was... It, it was interesting to see them do that visual reversal because that's the sort of thing that most series would have actually saved probably for a series finale. So to have them do it now relatively early into what we can safely assume is not its final season uh, just has me wondering where they're going from here and how much further down into the depths they're going to they're gonna take her character and take us with her. Yeah, I would like to still be able to root for her at the end of the season. I don't know if I'll be able to. Uh, but her not screwing over Finn is a big uh, plus in my book. So uh, I'm still on board. Well, Simon, what wins your weekend drama? I'm still... It's going to be The Good Wife for a while, I feel like. Un- until uh, The Affair allows me to watch it without constantly punching myself in the brain. <laughs> uh, to be clear, I do like The Affair. It's just... it's. It, but it's very good in a very frustrating sort of way. Yeah, fair enough. I'm also giving it to The Good Wife, and uh, I don't even feel bad about the repetition of that because this was another really great episode. So uh, well done, The Good Wife. And uh, now a few show notes. You can find a post for this episode up at sound.site.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can email us at televerse.gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook to follow the goings-on at TV. We're up in iTunes with an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed, and we always do appreciate ratings or reviews there. It's uh, It does help other people find the show and then of course we're both up on twitter i'm at the television and you are at sucker howl and simon what is our question of the week well on the subject brought up uh during the nick review i'm curious if there are series that people consider one of their all-time favorites where they don't think the writing was one of the best things about it intriguing nothing comes to mind for me mm, think about it. yeah that's gonna take some thinking I mean, like, unless you go to, like, a a childhood favorite, you know, where maybe mm-hmm. it's, like, a guilty pleasure or thing where it's, like, where you intellectually know that it's not a great show, but you have such a warm place in your heart. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, it's, it's not one for answering right away. You got to give that one the old think. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you for the question, Simon. Uh, now we're going to take a break and we're going to come back with the fabulous Mo Ryan from the Huffington Post and Talking TV with Ryan and Ryan to take a look at different depictions of sexuality on TV this year and particular and in particular Transparent Season 1, Outlander uh, Season 1.0, I guess the first half of the season and several other series as well. We'll be right back after this.
We're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kulzik, joined as ever by Simon Howell. And this week on the DVD shelf, well, it's not the DVD shelf per se. It's a special segment that we are very excited about. Last year, uh, the fabulous Mo Ryan came on the podcast to talk about one of the articles she had written about uh, a trend in TV, B-movie TV, and these sorts of uh, shows that were breaking the rules of the prestige cable drama and you know creating some wonderful art because of it and uh this year i'm very glad to say mo's back to talk about another of her pieces uh which came out last week i want to say yeah last early last week yeah talking about uh the you know outlander episode the wedding and different representations of uh sexuality and the female gaze that we're finally seeing on tv basically our, our listeners if you haven't read it you should go read it because it's great. Um, and so here to talk about all of these naughty and complicated uh, topics is uh, Maureen Ryan, the TV critic of the Huffington Post. Welcome back, Mo. Hey, thanks for having me. I always have fun on this podcast. So don't, uh, don't break our streak. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. Well, I wanted to dive in. Your, your piece focuses mostly on Outlander with several other uh, shows in there as well, but I wanted to start actually with Transparent uh, because I finally finished season one last week, and it's just such a wonderful show. I'm actually on the record on, on a podcast somewhere back not liking the pilot because of uh, I just had a very strong distaste for all of the characters who weren't Mora. Yes, you know it's that's so funny because well, I actually didn't have the same reaction, but in the first the first episode. I found some of them hard to take at times. Overall, I liked it, but I was like, okay, I'm not sure. <laughs> but I mean, I liked it, but I was like, okay, they've got to be, if they can dimensionalize the people, maybe I will, you know, like them more over time. And I don't know about you, but I, I really loved it. I'm only, I'm two episodes away from the end and I'm kind of saving the last two because I don't want to be, to be over. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly how you feel uh, because that's sort of how I was with, with Orange is the New Black, I kept putting off season two, finishing the end of season two, because uh, I didn't feel as much of an impulse to finish it in the same way I did season one, but also because I wanted to savor it. Uh, and you're going to like those last two episodes, Mo, I'm pretty sure. I can't wait. But watching this season of Transparent, the big difference I saw between the pilot and what came later was the the treatment of those other characters the mora was really fascinating to me in the pilot and continues it's such a great performance from jeffrey tambor throughout but i also really got invested in the kids and uh to, to tie in with this topic of the female gaze and sexuality and these different representations that we're seeing right now yes the the representation of mora and transgender topics and and that character is absolutely fascinating and, and it's long overdue long overdue but i also love the respect with which the show treats all of those kids those three central figures but especially i would say uh gabby hoffman in, in the last few episodes you get a lot more with her just her confusion and her search and all these other issues that come come in and i will say um amy landecker's character as well i'm trying to think of another show that has treated um characters i guess she's bisexual i would I, I would assume is the right if we're gonna use a label um mm -hmm. and I, i'm having trouble thinking of one that comes to mind as readily that isn't solely defined by that element of the show well right i think that's what's so good about like I, I feel like there's a whole wave of these shows where no one is like the representative minority of something <laughs> you know what i mean they're just people and that's part of who they are and i think we had to go through waves and waves of tv where 
Um, it was like, look, he's the gay character. She's the, you know, this is, here's the black friend, you know, and I'm so glad that we're getting past that because, you know, I, I, every cultural era and time is different. And I'm not, I'm sort I'm not sort of demeaning or saying, okay, these shows didn't have value in the past. I just think that we've all lived with TV for so long. We've all grown up with it that like the idea that those kids can have aspects of sexuality or more can they're first and foremost people and i feel the same way about the orange is the new black characters too i just they're interesting as individuals they don't feel like i don't feel like anyone's nervous about making them look bad because they are such and so category you know what i mean does that make sense absolutely and so i'm just i'm really i'm really encouraged by that and i mean it's it's such a rich stew transparent you know and i feel like to me, that's what Amazon should be doing. And I think, you know, Orange is the New Black is what Netflix should be doing. I, I just think that there's room for different styles of storytelling and different kinds of things. Like, you know, Sundance is doing Rectify and BBC America is doing Orphan Black. They're all kind of doing these different things that don't need to be the next Game of Thrones or that don't need to be the next Good Wife. You know, they're not trying to be that. And I feel like for a while... Everything was kind of not the same, but even for a long time there, you only on cable, it was like, and then here's our drama and here's another drama. And then cable, now there's a lot more comedy, a lot more half hours on cable. Now there's a lot of different kinds of dramas. Now there's a lot of different things that we can't even call comedy or drama everywhere. So it just feels to me like there's more crayons in the crayon box. You know, we've got like the 64 pack now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I if I had to... I mean, to, to get back specifically to Transparent, I think even more than sort of the the subject matter and, and how it's separate from all other things th through that lens, I think what makes it really novel to me is the way that, A, the writers, uh, Jill Soloway and, and her writers, have such a clear-eyed view, such a three-dimensional view of of who all these characters are and then in the context of the show, how all these people have a nuanced understanding of who each other is, but not necessarily themselves. Like, it's it seems as though the only character who really knows themselves is Mora, and she's worked really, really, really hard over a really long period of time to get that self-knowledge and to get that clarity of everyone else, and the people in her life haven't necessarily put in that hard work, so she kind of has to... To at least try to be patient with them and to, to watch her negotiate that balance and then to have that juxtaposed with these other sort of more limited, more selfish potentially characters is a really fascinating balance. And it's an interesting way to force you to empathize with people by pointing out they're not bad people, they're just limited people. And usually they're not, it's not even necessarily their own fault that they're limited, it's just sort of the circumstance they're in. Right. I think, um, is it okay if I talk about something that happened, I think, in episode eight, the talent show? Go for it. Sure. Okay. So um, so to me, a really key scene in the whole season was that talent show where so many things could have gone off balance or could have gone wrong. You know, Mora's performance and, you know, her costume and the way that was presented, it was like, you felt for her so much. It's not like she was, you know, the second coming of Lady Gaga, but, you know, you felt for her getting up there and actually being herself and enjoying the performance. But then that's juxtaposed with her kids 
laughing and, you know, just really unable to handle it and just acting out in different ways and being pretty obnoxious. But you, for each one of them, at that point, you knew so much about them and the pressures that they were working under that you kind of got it. And it, at every point, you know, at the end, when Maura is just kind of heartbroken that her kids have done this to her, you totally feel for her. But at no point were the kids set up to be the easy fall guy that you just condemn because it's hard. You know, this family's going through a really hard transition, all of them in different ways, individually and then with with Mora. And so it was like so many different things were going on in that scene. And that's one of my absolute favorite things in any kind of storytelling when you feel like it's just this layer cake of different things or maybe it's, I don't know, it's like bumper cars and they're all bumping off of each other. Um, I definitely, it's, it's such a, it's one of those shows that you feel very immersed in the world and very in touch with it. And I think the most heartbreaking thing for me about Transparent is, you know, Jeffrey Tambor is just killing it in that role. He's so good. And I think, you know, the, the, the things in that show that kind of break my heart are when Mora feels like she might have found her place in the world and she might have found her community and then when Maura feels like she will never get there, you know, she'll never be accepted. And I think it's that search for a, your your place in the world that no matter who you are, everyone feels that at some point. And that's why the show is really universal. But it's that f- sense of, will people accept me? Do I have a place in this world? Will I never have a place in this world? And even on that weekend when she goes away and she feels so accepted and you can kind of see her like relax it's still not you know ideal there are still flies in the ointment so i don't know it's just everything about that show (laughs) worked like gangbusters for me even the bradley whitford character and that's Mm -hmm. another it's such a strong guest uh turn from from him even that character doesn't quite understand and accept more right Exactly. And I mean, that's what's kind of heartbreaking. And I feel, again, like I feel like they're they're not trying to have a model minority narrative anywhere with anybody. And so, you know, the fact that they made it clear that a lot of the people at that camp were like, no, we just cross-dress and, you know, people who are transgender and whatnot, like that's wrong. And I guess the term now would be trans, but um, it's, and, and that's what's kind of, so bittersweet about the whole show is that more is like, Oh, I have this great friend and, you know, we can share this together and it's great. But then there's just sort of like this dagger at the heart of it. And with his, with her kids, it's like, I love them and I've raised them. And I've gave, I basically, she kind of gave up who she was so that the family could remain a family unit and, and then has to sort of ponder, was that the wrong thing? One of the things I liked the best about the season was that all season long, more as like telling secrets to people and saying, well, I'll give you this, but don't tell your siblings. It's kind of like, this is an instinctual thing at this point. You know? mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I, I didn't know what to expect. Same deal with the pi- from the pilot. And actually the pilot that I saw was slightly different. Um, way back when they recast, uh, Judith Light's role as the mother. And I think one other role, uh, but yeah, I just, I, it's one of those shows where like 10 episodes was not nearly enough. I would have taken 10 times that number. Well, and that that thread comes to a head in a wonderful way in the finale, so I'm sure you'll enjoy that. I can't wait, <laughs> but I don't want it to end. Reading Jill Soloway talk about um, how the show was written and conceived, it it's 
so great that a show was able to be produced uh, under the impetus. You know, uh, when you read her sort of philosophy of what the show is, was, is supposed to be about, she's using the language of like cutting edge radical feminism to talk about what the sort of vision she wants to to put out there of sort of, you know, she was she was throwing around terms like gender queer. And that is, you know, that's not easy stuff for most people to wrap their head around. Like it's, this is really heady stuff. So to have that be present and palpable in an easily digestible 10 episode dramedy format. Exactly. Without simplifying anything or, and and with also without feeling condescending in any way is like really immaculate. Right. There's no sacred cows in this narrative at all. And I love the scene where, they go to visit um they, they they i think it's the um gabby hoffman's character they go to the see the professor and the professor's giving this long lecture about you know radical feminist topics and so forth and it's like and she's clearly presented as kind of pompous and <laughs> so like nothing like that's what's so great about the show is that there's no everyone gets to be a human being everybody gets to have a compassionate look at them but it's also really willing to see their foibles and their mistakes and that's you know that's a really unbeatable mixture well and i think a big uh, a key part to that and one of the, one of the elements i was so glad to see as the season unfurled is that the the show does not waste time with uh having a character viscerally opposed morally opposed to the to to Mora coming out as transgender there's they don't even waste time with that we've already seen shows and and films where you know somebody comes out to their family and just are met with hatred and utter rebuke and that's something that obviously is uh unfortunately prevalent in certain parts of our of our country and in the world but this is a so just so much more interesting approach. What let's take a family who considers themselves very very liberal, very forward thinking. Who, you know, it's, it's always it's fun to watch the pronoun game throughout the <laughs> the season to see which yeah. of the the of the kids and uh, with the Judith Light character who, you know, immediately adopts uh, the you know the desired pronouns and and all of that and who has you know and when they're angry what comes out here and there mm -hmm. but to take characters who immediately go you know are theoretically accepting and understanding and see what still shakes out from that mm -hmm. that's a more interesting place to come from I, I think that that the closest thing you get to opposition is that is the sort of the the dinner sequence with with rob hubel's character and he's he's so great here but you also understand that he, that's not really what he's angry about he's got very legitimate reasons to be quite angry with uh, with his wife yeah, it, every I mean that's the thing. Like everyone gets a point of view. Everyone has a reason. You know, Joss Whedon always said that every character has a reason to live, and I feel like Transparent really lives by that. Like no one, no one is the villain. No one's the bad guy. I mean, I feel like don't you guys feel like sometimes, you know, we've got this generation of TV creators who have grown up with TV just like we did. Actually, it's several generations. You know, like the age range is pretty wide at this point. Um, so you've got everything from Matthew Weiner to Lena, Lena Dunham. So like people know the TV conventions and I always get so excited when I feel like they don't want to bore themselves by doing that. It's like you said earlier, you know, about like the 
what you'd expect the coming out sequences to be, what you'd expect the family fights to be. Like they've all seen that. Like we've all seen that a hundred times. So what's a different, what's a different way to get at some of this stuff? And that's, you know, it's really, really, really hard to make that seem so offhand and so fresh. I mean, I would imagine it's a lot harder than it looks, but that's, I think one of the great things about transparency, like we've been saying, it's like, it's entertaining. I laugh at this show all the time. It's very funny. Um, so Jill Soloway, I feel like has this really good background. I mean, she worked on six feet under, she's been on various different shows. She's been on half hour comedies. And, you know, one thing she said to, um, to various people in interviews is that she wanted there to be real structure to the episodes. So there'd be like little cliffhangers, like what happens then, or what does this person find out or what, What's the consequence of that? You know, so I really like that as well. It's just, it's it's TV savvy, but um, in in the ways that I like. So a so it's acceptable. <laughs> yeah, there, there's real structure to the season as well, which you, you'll see even more when you finish the two episodes. That's something I, I've come to really appreciate that shows are doing recently, is especially shows with a not network size episode order. The way they're able to take a ten six episodes or ten episodes or thirteen and create sort of a traditional or close to traditional three-act structure, You're the Worst especially did a fantastic job with that. Yes, very much so. Oh, my gosh. You just guys, are we just going to talk about all my favorite shows tonight? Because I'm <laughs> down with that. I think that's the plan. Again, these are perspectives that that have been needing to be shown. We've been lacking them. And You're the Worst, absolutely. I think, falls into that absolutely. The the show, the show, word that comes to mind for me with all of these shows, and we'll get to several others as well, hopefully before we run out of time, is respect. Mm -hmm. And the respect for everyone in in Transparent, even when they're wrong, is, yeah. is tremendous. And that's what it really grounds You're the Worst for me, is that respect between in that central couple. They might be terrible, but they're introduced in the pilot having this really long evening, these, this escapade, shall we say, uh, <laughs> but they, they spend it telling each other horrible truths about themselves and then not being judged and being treated respectfully while they're doing what some might consider horrible things to everybody <laughs> around them. It's great. Yeah. The perspectives on that show, again, are really great. Like there's no, um, I'm just so used to shows treating women, um, women's sexuality in a way where, I mean, don't you guys feel like it's like, oh, we're not judging. Uh, actually, we're judging. You know, it's like this <laughs> we're weird. We're kind of judging. It's, ki it's kind of hostile in some way. <laughs> it's like, oh, but then she died. Whoops. You know, yeah. it's like, yeah, that feels a little judgy to me. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. We're not judging, but this is what happens to them later. And we're going to linger with the camera for a few extra moments right, on that. Exactly. This is something I'm going to bring up in our Outlander discussion. But how many times in a narrative is a woman shown as being sexual, take charge in any particular realm, whether it's, in, in you know, sexually or not, and then later somehow punished by the narrative? You know, she loses her job or someone breaks up with her or someone drives a car over her or whatever. It's like, it's like, oh, well, she's great. We've got this strong female character, but oh, no, somebody chopped off her hand or whatever. You know, it's like, it's, man, it seems not so great. You know, she, she ended up as a drug mule or having yeah. to get a back alley abortion, the Nick. Yeah, that's seems not great. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, so that, I I loved You're the Worst, and I could go on about that all all night. Yeah, we, we almost ended up devoting an, an entire segment to You're the Worst a couple of weeks ago because we just had so, so much fun with it. And that was that was a great sort of come-from-nowhere surprise. Uh, I had no expectations for that. I thought the t- even just the title just sounded lame. You know, it's and... funny. I talked to... <laughs> I talked to the um, the creator of the show, and he was like, "Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's that you're not the only person who had a, an issue with the title." <laughs> so <laughs> Stephen Falk was very aware that many people were like, they saw the title and they're like, "No, no, I'm good, pass." <laughs> so yeah, it makes it sound like a like a teen comedy from 1998. Right, and I, what I said to him, I said quite honestly, what I'm used to is it's like you'll read the description of a show, it's like transgressive and or unlikable and or scalawag, you know, rogue people do blah, blah, blah. And it's whether it's a comedy or a drama, what they're putting out there as lovable, but cranky or unlikable or whatever, but secretly lovable. um, It's awful. They're just awful people. I want nothing to do with them. You know what I mean? I'm just, I feel like I've been burned by that whole trying to construct a narrative around someone who is quote unquote unlikable and they're just either really dumb or boring or mean or just like, no, nope, I don't care. Or they're too adorable. And so they're not actually that terrible. Yes. They're actually yeah. like, oh, my gosh, isn't that great? They're so cute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's I mean, and to, to, to sort of uh, refocus on what's supposed to be the connective tissue today, which is sex, sex, um, sex, 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 Um <laughs> it's always amazing when when shows, especially sitcoms, can find new ways to make sex funny, and which is you know it's 2014. You wouldn't think that's possible, but I, I think you're the worst at it with with panache, especially the, I mean obviously the the attempted threesome sequence is one for the ages. Yeah, that I, oh so just many the good things about that. Just the face, the face, <laughs> the face. <laughs> Oh my God, that was pretty great. Yeah, I mean, that was so, that so was, you know what I loved about that scene? They did it the cliche cable way and then they, they, they basically messed with you and were like, uh-huh, guess what? We're not doing that. Like they, they were waiting yeah. for you to like, like there's so, that's what I find interesting about so many of these shows that are really rewriting the rule book on how sexuality and how couples and who who's whose sexuality sexuality is depicted and how people know how these scenes go and they're just not willing to do them in the typical way you know i mean i think in the better shows that is so they they basically shot it on purpose as like oh hey hot and heavy threesome and then they just basically blew that up and had fun with it which is exactly the way to get comedy out of that moment my experience watching that scene was exactly what you were saying mo where i i the scene starts and you know they go the uh the way you're expecting and just my heart just sang i'm like oh really i thought so much more of you you're the worst and then as soon as i think that exactly i was like now you're making me sad show Best use of rack focusing in recent memory, for sure. Exactly. It was so great. And, um, God, I'm just dying to get to Outlander because I've I've just something I want to run by you guys on that exact note. Well, and let's go right to Outlander because that's another show that is taking these expectations we have for the, the, especially for those who are unfamiliar with the book and the, really the world of it, the, the fun, the amount of fun that Ron Moore and the, the crew at Outlander are having with everyone's expectations. Uh, it's just, it's a delightful level of meta commentary. 
Oh, completely. I mean, that's, again, I think Ron Moore has been, he's been working in TV now for over 20 years, you know, maybe closer to 25 or 30. I'm not sure exactly, but so he knows all the conventions of how it's usually done. And, you know, I actually knew who Ron Moore was in terms of just his writing byline from the world of Star Trek. So he really came up in that world when, and I love Star Trek, the Star Trek TV franchise. Obviously there are a lot of bad episodes, but there are a lot of really good ones or a lot of, you know, medium good ones. I think what's so great about that, because I've been rewatching it occasionally with my son, is that it's very much the classic standalone episode style. You know, it's a classic form of, it's like a mini TV drama and you learn a lesson at the end. So like Ron Moore is like that artist who knows the basics and the fundamentals really well and can like sketch a vase full of flowers and get it down perfectly. But he's bored by that because like that's the thing that everyone like was drilled into people even when it didn't suit the story and they were made to do that. So after years and years within the Star Trek world, he went off to do Battlestar Galactica. And the whole point of wanting to make that was we are not going to make what Star Trek was. We are not going to do that. You know, we're not going to have them looking out of a view screen. We're not going to, you know, have every episode end with a pat on the head and someone learning a lesson. So like the whole like founding document or by show Bible of that was like, how can we blow up these conventions and do something interesting with them? And I, it's funny. I was just reading on IO9. Um, I think it was Annalena Witz wrote a thing on how Battlestar Galactica is like Outlander. And I, I would, you know, there are a lot of parallels and obviously she points out that they're not direct analogies, but I think the, the same thing animates what Ron Moore wants to do with this story too, which is, you know, um, in cable, especially premium cable, there's a lot of male protagonists who are troubled in a particular way and, you know, maybe not good at their jobs, but they're handsome and they get women. It's like, this woman's good at her job. It's about a woman. It's about a woman who has two men that she uh, has emotional bonds to and has sex with, and that's all okay. Like, there's nothing, <laughs> there's no shaming, there's nothing bad about that. So, I mean, and that's what's fresh to me as a TV viewer, and I think that's what's smart of stars to commission, because, like, okay, another drama about a troubled, you know, male who has a reasonably good income and education and whatnot, but, oh, gosh, he's got issues. Like, I, you know, that's, <laughs> that's not the way to get attention in this TV scan landscape because we are full up for that one. See, that just really reminds me, uh, forget Darkness at Noon, Alicia Florek should be watching Outlander. That is so true. She would love it. I mean, outlined in a glass of wine, mm -hmm. that is living life, let me tell you. <laughs> Quick side note, was I the only one who thought all the glasses of wine on that Good Wife episode might have been a scandal reference? Just because you know, they were getting so reference-heavy in that episode? I don't know. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. Anyway, it could have been an alcoholism reference. <laughs> yeah, it could. It could I was been. thinking about the um, OC. Like, remember when suddenly, when um, the mom on the OC was like, they decided she was going to become an alcoholic, and it was like, now she's having wine in every scene. It's just like, <laughs> is someone going to rehab here? I thought of Cougar Town. Cougar Town, another reference. I went to Big Girl. Um, <laughs> but uh, to, to get back to Outlander, I'm a bit of an Outlander. Um, poser because i've only i was gone all summer and then i was watching tv again so i have only seen the last three you, episodes i know i know but i, I it was really weird because the first episode i watched was um the interrogation slash whipping episode and then the next one is the wedding episode okay and then, and then the mid-season finale 
<laughs> yeah, a lot, a little bit of whiplash and a little bit of the show being absolutely nothing like I was told or was go- was expecting. You were expecting uh, soft romance, light, and you're like, okay, no, wait, that's not the. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was expecting like a, a Harlequin romance uh, with a little bit of Ron Moore pretentiousness. Uh, when, oh, and we ouch. got something. Oh well, I, I think it was fair. <laughs> no, I know. And, I, I, and here's the thing: like you know, I, I gotta be honest with you. Like when someone just asked me on Twitter, like you know, should I get stars to get Outlander and this and that? And I'm like, I, I'm overall positive on Outlander, and I would say, but what I just told someone was, four of the episodes of the eight that I saw were good or very good. Four of them that I saw were. For me, I thought had sluggish pacing, and the big thing that I loved about uh, Battlestar here, you know, and that 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 I think was pretty much a well-defined feature by say episode eight of that show. And I don't want them to be direct analogies. I don't want Battlestar Mark II, but I just think that in, in Battlestar they had a really great knack for filling in the supporting characters, and so you know, I think Blackjack and Frank and Claire and Jamie are reasonably um, compelling characters. That's, I don't have an issue with that. Honestly, every other character on that show to me is one dimensional and not that interesting. And the episodes, like say episodes two, three, four, five had some interesting moments or some good bits, but I think there was a lot of just wandering around or a lot of stuff that felt relatively inconsequential and did not really advance the narrative. So that's just me telling me if I'm totally wrong. With the perspective of having seen the whole half season, now what I feel like they were doing in those earlier episodes was sort of establishing uh, establishing your expectations. So th- they knew that they wanted to have the wedding and they knew, you know, at least that's what I'm assuming, they knew how this, the half season was going to end, but mm-hmm. they didn't want this to be the romance drama show, the romance novel show. And so what I was very relieved when I watched the pilot and in the second episode that they introduced Jamie and he's very much the, the Harlequin, Harlequin, uh, romance, you know, cover guy, but they don't start any flirtation. There's, I'm sure some Mm -hmm. people would disagree with that, but I wasn't seeing any UST right away. She's very, Claire is so focused on her situation and her, her, means of escape and just handling what's happened to her jamie's not on just she's not even thinking about that and so that way when they eventually do you know get married and have a lot of sex uh that's not something that's been a defining element of the show all along that's a progression of their characters Mm -hmm. and so while there is i would not disagree that some of the earlier episodes uh are leisurely paced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'm absolutely fine with it because then when we do get to the wedding, when we get to the interrogation and the wedding and then the, the mid season finale, that all feels very well earned. She didn't just pop back in time and then hook up with cute Highlander guy. No, I totally, I mean, that's why I even said that in my review. It's like, I really appreciate the attention to detail and the world building. I just don't, I just, here's the thing I think is the problem on Battlestar Galactica, everybody was cooped up in a tin can. 
everybody was in the same space. So you would see Starbuck in one episode, you'd see her the next. I mean, there were early episodes where it's like, and then the priest came in and he was doing this. And then, you know, this woman over here is kind of a healer person. Then you don't see her for five episodes. It's like, it's very scattershot in terms of who you see and when you see them and how they are connected. And I don't like Dougal and, you know, the Laird and all this kind of stuff. There just wasn't enough meat on the bone with those characters and those relationships for me to really care. Whereas I feel like Battlestar did a better job of making, giving those connections kind of meat and heft in the in the early going. You know, it, obviously it took time to kind of reach its full fever pit, but you know, and I I have hopes for the future. I'm not I'm not writing off the show at all, especially because. Episodes five, um, six, seven, eight, I thought were really strong. I absolutely uh, agree. Actually, you're not alone there. Uh, so despite what I said earlier, this is the se- first half season of this is in no way for me uh, a-, a season one of Battlestar, which I think is absolutely fantastic. Um, but yeah, ho- I'm hoping that, like like you that they will flesh out some of those other characters. Um, I, before we run out of time, though, I do want to talk a little bit about Masters of Sex because it's been... Uh, the last few episodes of that season, the last stretch, Simon and I talked about on the podcast, and there is a lot that they are doing, and I and I compliment them for taking on some of these topics. I just don't know how much of it they're doing well, and how well they are aware of what they're doing. Hey, before <laughs> we move off Outlander, that's a great topic. Could, could I ask you my Outlander question? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, sure. um, it's something that actually occurred to me. Um, I podcasted about this with uh, Ryan McGee on my podcast and with Anne Helen Peterson, who guested with us. And so we were talking about, you know, the whole idea of the female gaze and how Outlander depicted sex, especially the wedding episode and and all that kind of stuff, which I thought was really revolutionary. And I'm, I'm glad that, you know, people are talking about that because I think it's really something we haven't really seen a lot of ever. Um, so one thing occurred to me sort of after I wrote that piece and after we even talked about it, which was... I think we talked about it a little on our podcast, but so um, you've both seen the wedding episode, yes? Yes. Okay. So um, so the first time they actually had sex, uh, you know, <laughs> Jamie's a virgin, so it's it's not exactly like this is the greatest experience of, of Claire's life. So what I thought was really interesting about that is that it's not that she's mean to him or says something cutting or awful, but it's very clear, you know, in that moment that it's, it wasn't as good as it could have been, or it wasn't as good as it will get or whatever. And here's something I don't know if I've ever seen in any film or TV show, a woman who's, who sort of evaluates a sexual performance in a non, I guess, I don't know what you'd call it, you know, isn't, I guess, isn't enthusiastic about a sexual encounter, right? And then is not punished by the narrative, but is actually celebrated by it for going on to, for whatever she goes on to do. I mean, that's kind of what we were talking about earlier. Can you think of any instance in which a woman has a less than enthusiastic response to an encounter and then is not punished at all by the narrative ever? Well, it tends to just be a answer of, oh, well, they're not supposed to be together because if they were, the sex would be amazing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I that's what I was thinking. Like, I, I, I can't think of many scenes where I mean, I can't think of many series where characters earnestly discuss 
their their relative performance with each other ever. So that's kind of a that's kind of a side thing. But I, I do I do feel like it's it's incredibly common to have characters who have maybe been after each other for a while, then they hook up and then you see the it cuts like a hard cut to the them. angels sing and the heavens open and it's perfect. <laughs> yeah, it's that or it's or it's a hard cut to like an overhead shot and they're and they're both like sitting there with like blankets covering three quarters of them and they just both look like really kinda kinda frustrated. Oh right. Because they just couldn't make it work. Everything else works, but not that. Like that's definitely that's an established bit. Right. Yeah. And I feel like that's so predictable. And I feel like, you know, what what I, I really didn't get into as much in my piece, but I tried to a little bit was like when the sex is depicted as this, you know, wonderful, glossy, golden union of two people that was meant to be, or sometimes you get just the cutaway. It's like they kiss and then then they just cut to they just roll out of you know roll off of each other and like lay there like that was so amazing or whatever i don't i just feel like it doesn't add to anything to the characterization and it dehumanizes both people it's like well yes obviously the 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 dude is just going to be this amazing stud and of course the woman is just going to be like oh my god this is the greatest day of my life it's like (laughs) how is that well it's not additive to anything no, and I, I think that we're only just now seeing that, you know, when people talk about the advantages of TV as a medium, they talk about, oh, you can develop characters over time, you can develop a narrative over time. But what it, what's only just starting now to happen is to acknowledge, hey, if you're watching a two-hour movie about, you know, four or five characters, you don't have time in two hours to find ways to characterize through sexuality all of the time. Like maybe there's a, a few, a few movies that have pulled it off, but usually they're movies that are, that are about that, you know, that, that are, that that is the exact subject matter with, with TV, you have time to spend with characters to characterize them through these previously marginal subjects or, you know, ideas that were, you know, only seen through a kiss and then roll off. And it, it, we're only just now starting to see people use the, the time that TV has to take advantage of that. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, and again, it's like, I think people are also smart enough to be like, let's not have this be dead space. Like, let's have this actually, you know, deepen our understanding of the characters, make us care about their dilemmas more. And that's that's one thing I feel like I'm seeing more of, which is really, really a relief. Well, and I will also encourage our, our listeners to also go check out the piece that uh, Ryan McGee wrote up about this episode, because he's... He talks about this, and uh, you can go to his website to check it out, but he talks about another important element of this wedding episode, which is the show doesn't judge uh, Jamie for not being so great the first you know time or two with, with Claire. Mm-hmm. He, he's completely unexperienced, inexperienced, uh, and and doesn't know what he's doing at all. But she doesn't judge him or, or shame him, and neither does the show. And right. uh, that's very rare. And it's very rare to have, and many people have pointed this out, a sexually experienced woman and a less sexually experienced man, and that is regarded as natural and normal, and there's no sense that she's a, she's a cougar and she's like, it's like, <laughs> that's not, there's, when a woman is really sexually experienced and unashamed about that, there's almost there's some weird desire in the, in so many narratives to kind of make that pathological in some way. Like, well, there has to be something wrong with her. Like, Oh, she's drunk or she's this or she's that. I mean, if just bringing it full circle to 
uh, Battlestar Galactica, one reason that people hated Ellen Ty is because she drank. She didn't care what people thought of her. She was, you know, not, you know, 18 years old. She was an older woman. She knew what she wanted and she didn't care. And she, you know, she was sexual and she was brazen. And that made some people just completely lose their minds. And it's like, okay, you can not like a character, but there's an element of not liking her that was really messed up back in the day. But yeah, well, because normally if there's an, an, a sexually experienced an older woman, I can tell you what they're going to be wearing and what their makeup's going to look like and what their hair's going to look like. Because oh, yeah. usually that they're dressed and treated in a certain way, and it's very refreshing to see that not happen with Claire, at least to this point. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, on the on the the topic of inexperience or maybe issues in the bedroom. I'm going to transition us back to masters of sex because I got to get your thoughts, Mo on, on everything that they were doing in that last batch of episodes. We could just keep still keep calling her Artemis, but you know, the calimetric lady (laughs) and I feel like they're trying, they're not sure if they're exploring sexual assaults um, and power dynamics or if they're in, a screwball comedy. And it seems like that's an issue for me. I think the show has a lot of issues and I'm going to make a confession. I think I'm three, I've got three episodes on my DVR of Uh. masters of sex. And here's the thing. I have a lot of affection for that show. I'm really glad when it's really working, it's really good. But part of the reason I still have a couple episodes on my DVR is because um, I think the show has struggled this season. I mean, I was really kind of hoping, you know, season one, um, it established this world and the characters and the dynamics and the sex research and how they were approaching that and all these really worthy things that I thought, I'm like, okay, well, they're going to take it to the next level in season two. And I feel like there were moments when they did. I just think it's a show that has consist- consistency trouble. You know, it's just what the heck was going on with uh, Master's wife all season? Like that just, she was, that, that storyline was just poorly conceived and I could see what they were trying to do with her. And a lot of the times though, she just came off as shrill and really unpleasant cable wife 101 and other supporting characters. Like yeah, the calimetric lady at one point I'm watching her introduce that, you know, handsome surgeon guy as their new spokesman. And I'm like, what show am I watching? I don't, what is happening (laughs) right now? I don't understand. Like I had that moment with Homeland last season where it was like, Dana is in a like a chop shop with a guy, and I, what is happening? Like, what? Why are we here? <laughs> somebody, <laughs> somebody, give me a roadmap to how I got here because I'm not really sure. So, um, I think the stuff with Masters and Johnson and their relationship is interesting. I think the stuff with like the the really you know heartbreaking sexual case studies, um, as with Betsy Brandt's character, like that that's really interesting. Um, but I don't know the rest of it. Just, it's just, it's very, it's variable. Put it that way. I don't know. What do you guys think? To me, the main problem is that it's, uh, you use the word worthy. I think that's the perfect one word description of, of masters of sex. Like occasionally it's great. Uh, and it's never terrible, but, and it's always admirable, but it's just, it's so scattered. It's so scattershot. It's so. Uh, it, it has no it has no thematic cohesion other than sex, mm-hmm. um, which isn't enough. now some other sex that is also sex. Yeah, that is also sex. Uh, it's just it's not enough. It's it's too vague to act as glue. Uh, sex is not glue. I don't know how else to put 
put it. <laughs> well, one of the things that I will compliment them on um, with the, that Libby arc, it sounds like it's worked for me more than it has for you two. But in, in the, I think it's in the finale or right before then, I really love what they do and what I think this show has the potential to do in changing perceptions um, about the difference between or changing how we film nudity Mm -hmm. because, and it's something that first I started uh, girls got me thinking about it. And I think it's actually a really overdue and positive thing. It's something that needs to happen. The sense of the the difference between sexualized nude scenes and Mm -hmm. somebody being naked. Yes. And uh, there's a moment with Libby that, that, where she just looks at herself and looks at herself naked and it, it's not sexualized. It's very, um, again, it's, it's so rare to see a tre- character treated respectfully as they are and not sexually when they're standing naked. I totally agree. And like, there are shows where I just feel like, you know, there's the TV show bank accounts and like that masters of sex always puts so much Money in the Bank for me. I think it's just such a deeply compassionate show about exactly what you said about pers- about revelation. Like, what do you reveal of yourself, of your body, of your mind, of your past? You know, how do people use that against you? How do people accept you? Do you accept yourself? I mean, there's such a really humanistic and humane treatment of people in their... I mean, the, some of those hotel room scenes were so great. And they really made explicit like you know she made him undress for her and he made her you know undress for him and there are all these different ways in which those power dynamics works for from both sides of the equation and i think that stuff is so powerful that i just i feel like we're kind of agreeing on this that i just think the stuff that doesn't work as well or that doesn't have that resonance is so much more noticeable does that make any sense yeah, for sure. Because there's, yeah, there's just some stuff, like you said, like when we're just following around the calimetric stuff, it's like, why is this as much as much as, you know, some of the sort of more ancillary characters can be really interesting. It it feels like you're watching three or four different shows that have this vague, this extremely vague connective tissue. That's exactly how I feel about um, Gotham, too, at the moment. I'm like, wow, every actor on the show is in a different show. Interesting. Even when they're in the same scene, they're all in a different show. Oh, God. Can we spend another 45 minutes talking about why Gotham is bad? Or we no. could just hit ourselves with hammers. <laughs> one of those. I'll tell you, I, I wish I was watching the Fish Mooney show, because that's the only one of those shows that I actually like. I would like. like that show. I will <laughs> make her put that show somewhere else, and yep. I will watch that. Yeah. Can I just throw in one closing thought? Uh, you know, it, just to forecast the future of sex on TV, I feel like the next sort of undiscovered country that needs to be, that we need to get to, to, to advance to the next level, we need some dick on TV. It needs to thank start you. happening. Where's yeah. the pain? I'm, thank you. I mean, this that makes me, I am going to come off sounding like the biggest <laughs> sex obsessed, obsessed maniac. You know, it's actually something in my writing I've kind of often stayed away from. I mean, I went to Catholic school. I have, you know, all the weird hangups and stuff like that. But it's weird to me. You know, when this occurred to me was it with looking the HBO show, mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. so obvious to me that, okay, So the conventions of what is shown during a sex scene, even on premium cable, are just that. They're just conventions 
they're not actually how life is. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I'm not a gay man, obviously, but it was so obvious to me that if I were like, it just felt off. You know, I, one of the things I linked to in my piece on Outlander was that great Lily Loofborough piece about sexual scavengers where, you know, people who, whose gaze is not catered to are always looking to kind of find scraps and things to look at. Well, here's a show that's not meant to be a scrap. It's obviously looking as meant for anyone. And I found it, you know, worth watching and I thought it was good, but particularly if you're that person, if you're a gay man, it's, it's so weird how they depicted sex. And I'm not saying, you know, Okay, I think if I think here's the thing, if if HBO had had a full frontal scene with men having sex, that's all that anybody would have talked about, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it felt strange to me that it wasn't there. And Ron Moore, in one of his interviews, has said that that is a possibility for Outlander. I just want to who's going to be the I mean, <laughs> there's been, you know, male full frontal on HBO from Hodor, so <laughs> I you know. Maybe, maybe that's not. Well, geez, if you want to talk about scavengers, look at the <laughs> look at all the guides there are to how to spot Ben Affleck's dick and Gone Girl. Like I know, that's, right? That's that was... that's where the culture's at right now. Someone needs to get ahead of that. Exactly. Well, and there's nothing that highlights uh, that highlights something like this as much as awkwardly placed plants or the camera <laughs> just slowly panning in one direction and then pausing i mean or just the classic really sticky sheet oh god (laughs) well there's just this expectation if it's a prestige drama if it's on pay cable uh if it's of a certain subject uh if it's certain type of story you should expect that you'll see full frontal female nudity but the notion that you might see a penis is just absurd And, and female actresses are like expected to be comfortable with that if they want to to play a certain kind of role and are they brave enough to to do that role and you know so like with lizzie kaplan doing this story it's like expected at a certain point you're gonna see her naked she's playing she's playing uh jenny i don't they feel like there's any sort of expectation well he's playing bill why shouldn't there be the same level of expectation that that the role will require this it's been 25 years since bad lieutenant and we're still talking about harvey Keitel's dick i know come on get yourself immortalized yeah it's it's very very odd it's 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 just i mean i think we're at that point like a tipping point where um we all know what the conventions of these scenes are and i think storytellers and audiences alike are just kind of ready for those conventions to go away but it's kind of one of those things like let's all jump in the pool together and you keep looking around like are they really going <laughs> to jump at the same time as me like there's just i'm sure there's enormous amounts of nervousness as you know someone as people like wonder about what will the press coverage be and how will it be received and so forth but do you guys think that maybe you know, now, like, there's been all these deals announced, like, lately, you know, everyone's going to be standalone and HBO is going to be, you know, separate standalone service that you can get. And there's already Netflix and Transparent had some, you know, fairly sexual content on Amazon. I'm like, I'm just, I could click over and buy toilet paper and there's people, like, doing it right here. So that's crazy. Um, so there's this whole brave new world of this stuff. And I'm wondering if that's one way that, that people will continue to distinguish themselves like you know why not have a show like looking where it's not you know the the sanitized you know version of what that would be i don't know i mean i'm just wondering if someone's gonna like take that plunge to differentiate themselves in this 
crazy landscape of things to watch. Having reviewed Spartacus season one this season, uh, this summer for the AV club, there's nothing that's going to make uh, full frontal male nudity as un- unremarkable as it's showing up when it's appropriate. After right. a while, you filter out the penis because you're following the storyline. Thank you. Let's talk about Spartacus forever. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh-huh. we've already gone uh, too long. Mo, do you have any final thoughts on the topic or any other shows you want to, to mention that people should check out if they haven't seen? Oh, gosh. Um, I guess, you know, The Affair, I think, if we're going to just sort of have a little capper that is going with the theme. Mm. I think The Affair is pretty great. And I think, um, again, it's another one of these shows that is using sexuality as sexuality but also as how do people connect or not connect and i think that that's something that a lot of these shows share is like when is it a real connection when is it not when is it um you know there's just so many different kinds of moments that can exist between two people and the the affair is very explicit about saying that you can't necessarily trust one character's viewpoint and and that's the get that's kind of like the the shtick of the show And I'm very interested to see how they explore that because, you know, seeing how all of these encounters, sexual or not, you know, unfold from different vantage points, I think could be really interesting. Yes, the male gaze was very prevalent in his perspective of the pilot. The female gaze, very much less so. I didn't note any of it. And that could be the headspace of where the character's at in the pilot. But I will be very interested to see how that progresses through Mm -hmm. the season, whether the show will have the courage to be just as gazing from her perspective as it is willing to be from his. Right. And whether Dominic West will have the courage to throw his dong in there. (laughs) Oh, Simon. We can't Simon We got to end right there. It's where my head's at right now. But no, I feel like of all the actors, I mean, he wouldn't care. I don't think he'd care. I don't know. He, I mean, he, he, seems like, he, he feels like he'd, he'd be up for it. He seems like he would be I up think so. for Yes, I agree with that. Well, on that note, cheery as it is, <laughs> Mo, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Uh, where can our listeners find you and your work online? There's so many places. So many places. Uh, Huffington Post dot com slash tv you'll see a, a red you know maureen ryan somewhere along there or you can just go to um mo ryan at twitter m-o-r-y-a-n and there's a link to my page and all of my you know all of my tweets are 100 percent amusing and informative so uh or your money back so that's where i live well and of course talking tv with ryan and ryan oh of course talking to you with ryan and ryan also that uh <laughs> that's on itunes and uh if you look at the page for myself or ryan on twitter usually we were linking to a recent podcast or you can just google talking tv with ryan ryan that is also another option well thank you again so much for coming on mo always a pleasure my pleasure and uh thank you everyone for listening we'll be back next week with another episode of the televerse mm-hmm.